Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, curators Go Siing and Jolene Lo examine approaches to seriality in form in the practices of artists Kim Lim, Midori Takada, Anne Truitt, and Charlotte Posnansky. They also discuss the contribution of women artists to minimal art. Okay, so we're here next to uh, Kim Lim's Intervals 1 plus 2 and also her column over here on the floor next to Z. Um, these were both produced in London. Uh, and um, I just wanted to note also that um, during the time that Kim Lim was practicing, she was also widely collected by public institutions uh, and private collectors. And to some extent, she achieved uh, relative success in establishment terms. And that is to say, at a very early stage of her career, uh, she managed to get solo shows at significant venues and group exhibitions as well. Um, but today, in the canon of British art history, her position is at best uh, quite slippery, you know, and I just thought I'd note also that she shares, this is not a singular experience, uh, and that she shares this position uh, with many other artists uh, who chose to come to London to stay and live. Um, some examples are Rashid Arins, whose work you can see here, and also David Medallia, who is also part of the Minimalism exhibition, uh, and Li Yanxia. Um, because these artists were not um, of, uh, were non-European, uh, they were considered outsiders, and, and often their practices become somewhat forgotten and left out of the, the his British art history. Um, but also, I mean, what, what I'm trying to do by saying that is also that this difference that uh, Kim Lim and many others felt was not just gendered, but it was also mutually imbricated in other discourses of gender, race, class, um, and sexuality uh, within the dynamics of power. You know, uh, gender was not the only factor. Um, and it was also complicated by um, British artists at the time um, having a very difficult time vying for space within their own field, uh, especially in the backdrop of uh, burgeoning and dominating activities and discourses that were emerging from the US. But to go back to Kim Lim, um, I, I mean, in, in as much as she was, uh, she recognized her position as a uh, Chinese woman working in British society, this never for her um, was something to be resolved in her, uh, uh, I mean, to be taken on in didactics, but was something to be sustained or negotiated through an artistic practice on an aesthetic level. Um, but this is quite different from another artist that Z is going to discuss, who is Charlotte yeah. who in 1968 um, felt like art could no longer serve a social function. Mm. Um, mm. And with that, she like, decamped and turned to sociology. Mm. You know? So, mm. I mean, Z, maybe I can ask you, and yeah. can begin by asking, what you think that gesture of withdrawal from the art world yeah. meant for someone like Posnanska. Sure, sure. I, I think what is also um, interesting to highlight here is that the, the, of the three artists that we have selected to discuss today, um, it's, and, and, and you know, they don't represent um, 
the entirety of the, the construct of difference that we're, we're trying to encapsulate here. They just represent one of the many factors, right? But just taking a look at the three artists that we're, we're, we're going to talk through with you guys today is that firstly, Kim Nim Posenenska and even Midori Takada to a large extent in her music work, their art is not necessarily considered uh, traditionally or conventionally um, art criticism would call feminine, i.e. the usage of perhaps like um, fabric or that uh, relates to the domestic space or concerns. These are works that were very much like their male peers in, in, in that sense. Second of all, they all had formal trainings, um, art training, and yet it's interesting to note how the recognition against their peers is quite inequitable, um, perhaps something that is, is still being uh, corrected perhaps or being addressed um, even up till today. So there, there is that lineage of that, the, what, it, what happened in the art historicization, but also like today, the contemporary reading of these works as well. And lastly, um, I guess just to make that, that, that difference clear is that because um, when we talk about like women artists, there's also like a whole swathe of, of practices. And in this sense, the three artists that we've selected, I don't think we can say that their art is overtly political, as in they did not set out to make art from a feminist perspective. Uh, they were just making art, really. Um, but what then we can read about their practices is uh, how some of these, uh, the decisions that they have made could be aligned through a political reading. And, and we want to examine that then. So um, kind of like extending from, from uh, what Joe has described of Kim Lim's practice and, and, and going back to this, what is that politics? Uh, uh, because you describe, in a way, for Kim Lim, uh, being part of Hayworth Annual 2, uh, meant that there was an expectation, burden perhaps, that uh, that feminist perspective was, was, was thrown at her, right? A position that she may or may not have wanted to take as an artist. Um, so let's keep that in mind maybe and see how we can revisit that. Uh, but I will perhaps share a bit about Posenenska and her, maybe the construction of her difference. I'm just going to pass around. So yes, for Posenenska, she, the turn in her practice was, was a departure from art to academia. Um, so it was really drastic and it was rather abrupt because uh, her sculpture practice really consolidated and became um, quite significant in the last three years of her practice between 65 to 68. And 68 was when she uh, wrote the manifesto um, in which I'll read the last line um, where she, it sort of anticipated her departure. She said, I find it difficult to come to terms with the fact that art can contribute to nothing to the solution of pressing social problems. And this sort of anticipated um, that departure, a very uh, specific, deliberate uh, device of leaving the art world to study about um, labor conditions of factory workers instead. But let's look at her art uh, and, and, and let's look, start from there perhaps. So 
um, Square Tube's Series DW, which is currently on display at the historical lobby, it's, it resembles ventilation ducts and it's assembled from elements. So it shares the same sort of like uh, tenets that I spoke of earlier, uh, which has come to be these key principles uh, that define minimalism, right? Um, it's of square and rectangular cuboids of different volumes. They can be assembled and reconfigured according to the basically different display and spaces that it occupies. There is another version. So the larger A3 piece is Series D, uh, which is um, made of galvanized steel. The one that we have is made of corrugated cardboard. So there is a, a, the, if you look at the work, we see that it is, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's not feminine in that sense. It is permutable. It's made of industrial material. Um, each element is like a building block. Much Think of it like, uh, like Lego, basically. Uh, the material is cheap and industrial, making it extremely easy to be reproducible. And the arrangement in, in, of the work in, creates very specific relationships. Um, so when it's arranged serially, it, it, it looks pretty much like the minimal works of the American counterparts that you would see in, in this section of the gallery. Um, but when arranged in relation to the architecture of the room, it then alters um, and creates a sort of a relationship in that it becomes as if it's an extension of the architecture there in that space. So there is an element of choreography in that work as well. And so in 1967, uh, there was a group show in Frankfurt called the All, All These Sweetie Will One Day Be Yours. This was an exhibition at Gal uh, Gallery Dorothea Lua. And um, these cardboard structures, the same one, not the same one, but the same material and the same series uh, that you see outside, has, was repeatedly rearranged for the duration of the two hours of the exhibition, according to the spatial and weather conditions. So there is that element of choreography that could be performed um, with this set of work. But where she differs then from the minimal artist, uh, perhaps um, especially the, uh, what we're setting against this, this, this North American or the white male sort of like uh, counterpart is that she relentlessly resisted the, the notion of authorship. So she, she, doesn't, she did not sign any of her works. Um, in her manifesto, she said that the work must be repeatable, objective, and economical. They are, in her words, prototypes of for mass production. So up to today, as, as galleries and museums or anyone who wants to show her work, you pay the cost of the production of that material and the estate essentially manage, that manages her work will be able to assist you with the reproduction of that work. So it really has that, the, its criticism of the commoditization of art will comes directly manifest and manifestly in the work itself. Um, so I think that's, that's quite an interesting like, position that was taken uh, by an artist at that time, and it's quite radical. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's the last of her, her series. So she, she, like I said, her sculptural practice was really short, 65 to 68, and she made series A, B, C, D, E. E was the last one. 
And, um, and she has since sort of refused any invitation to show her work. Um, and after her death, uh, her husband sort of took over the estate and has been facilitating the, the, the sort of display of her work, um, which I, I've, what, where I find interesting in the political lens is that her interest was beyond aesthetic concerns. So her idea of that permutability or change is not in how we can change her work, but rather in how it can be done through human action, um, something that she cared about a lot. And so thus, it sort of reflects that, that very deliberate decision to leave the art world as a form of agency that is, yeah, I think is deeply um, political, yeah. Hmm. I mean, just to pick up on that point on permeability, like, do you, in what ways do you see them as similar or different from, say, other artists associated with minimalism? I, so, I suppose, maybe, so taking a point that was not um, exhausted earlier is that it, they share the same attribute in terms of its repetition, its reality, and its, its usage of material, but instead of still locating itself, the, the, the relationship of the object within the art world concerned with aesthetics uh, questions, it was actually a way the artist was seeking how um, interaction, participation, which actually at that point within the art world was still not yet so obvious. So maybe another counterpart that one could think of in Germany was uh, uh, Franz Eher Walter, who looked at you know, like the visitor participating in the artwork. So that work is also at the City Hall Chamber right now where um, it's activated um, for two hours every day. So you can actually go there and where basically it invites that sort of participation within the, the making of the work or the realisation of that work. Um, but, but these were still concerns that were within this art bubble, I suppose. Like for her, that departure to sociology meant that, you know, she was trying to look for something. She couldn't find it. And she was just extending to somewhere else, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your, your <laughs> question. Yeah. But, um, but I, I, I see this as an interesting way of looking at also like, a few other artists, because to today, you know, our job here as well um, um, in exhibition making is then uh, to situate, like I said at the introduction, situating works alongside um, the other artists that are written in the canon already uh, may seem like a small or insignificant gesture, but sometimes it, it, it also comes with that trepidation of that, agi that agitation is a trepidation as well. Um, so like for instance, in Posnanska's case, it was almost four decades after 1968 in 2007 where her work received a, sort of a widespread reappraisal when her work was shown in Documenta, uh, Documenta 12 in 2007. And I mean, ironically, she was protesting Documenta 4 in 68, uh, calling such exhibition as 
blinding us to social misery and deplorable state of affairs in the society. So this was a relationship with that, that, that commoditization of the art world. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's quite radical even up to today. And to think that someone was doing this um, in the 60s, it's, it's, it's quite compelling, I feel. Yeah. Hmm. yeah I mean, I think we often... Um, it's, it's quite an interesting counterpoint because often we think that women are just simply forgotten or overlooked. But I think what this narrative also provides is that there's this deliberate choice of absenteeism. You know, she, she chose to absent herself yeah. at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and what, and, and in that agency also, I suppose then it's like, um, you know, what does that mean in, in art? historiography today, I suppose, or even exhibition making. Um, yeah, a, a sort of point that we need to be aware, I suppose. Yeah. So, so basically, I suppose like the, the, the next artist also that we'll be discussing, but we'll discussing it with a, like a collective listening experience, um, is um, that th there is this recurring like theme of that there is a lapse in the recognition or the appraisal of their work. As in like, you know, for Posseninska, it took almost four decades. Um, in Midori Takada's case, the next artist that we'll be talking about is that, you know, she produced an album in 1983 and pretty much slipped into obscurity because, you know, like, there was just... Yeah, nothing happened, and and we will we will listen together and make that comparison. I think this conversation is going to be quite interesting, and it was only in two thousand seventeen, um, because of the wonders of YouTube, and its uh, similar taste algorithm, that um, her song kept appearing at the end of like other songs that people were listening to. And so she was sort of rediscovered in a manner of happenstance that um, we were like, who is this person? And, and so only in, you know, very recently that like there was a, a revival of, of her music. Um, and yeah, so maybe we, we have a, if you listen together, no, but we, we start first though with, I, I, I want to, I want to, rev I don't know, maybe not so radical. Can we listen to Steve Reich first? <laughs> maybe I'll just say a little bit about what we just listened to. Those were um, four percussionists playing bongos that were tuned to four uh, similar sounds. Um, so what was happening is that they were playing to like a 12-beat cycle and it starts with one, uh, one note, right? One mono it's a kind of a monophonic texture. Uh, and what happens is that they each add a note slowly, but one can only one of the players can only add a note every time, uh, only when all the other three players have caught up. So that's how that, that layers of sounds start to build up in what you're hearing until they, they kind of reach uh, a moment where they are all in unison and the 12 beats are all played. And only after that does someone start phasing. And what that does is that one, person, one player one starts playing it a little bit, one beat faster than the other, uh, so that you can hear this uh, kind of conflict of rhythm happening. And from that conflict, um, player three and player four will then build on to that, adding to this sort of chaotic uh, uh, sounds. Um, yeah, sorry. Is the sound sorted? Shall we play the next, yeah. next track? Um.
Yeah, so the this piece is actually um, by Midori Takada. Um, it's from the same album. Um, well, it's from the 1983 album uh, Through the Looking Glass. But it's not the. It's a different piece from the one that you will hear um, if you go to the anteroom in Gallery Two. So that is uh, Catastrophe Sigma. So this is a, a shorter track in the same album. It's called Crossing. And Joe and I, when we were sort of like discussing about this talk, we decided to kind of like think about. Um, listening together but also selected this track because um, of almost the kind of um, acoustical um, similarities uh, perhaps with uh, right drumming um, but that similarity sort of extends to Takada's sort of interest as well so she's classically trained um, and she joined the Berlin Symphony Orchestra um, and you know she was not like she she wanted to go beyond the limit of of that classical training and and there was interest as well in in African drumming and and Indonesian gamelan, which is also very similar to to Steve Reich. Um, but at this and and so we're looking at both on a formal level of just listening at the composition itself. Um, looking at the training itself, uh, they're 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 almost similar. But what happened there, uh, which has resulted in in a, 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 that lapse again in the writing um, and maybe the appraisal of of such musician, um, you know, just and and its appreciation in, in the market, I suppose is is where that question is. But, but just going back to the work itself, the tracks for Steve uh, Wright's drumming, so it's, it's, a, it's a, quite a long work um, across four movements or four parts. So what we were listening to was the, were the first uh, three minutes of part one, which is just the bongos, eight uh, uh, tuned bongos and four percussionists. But the whole piece, drumming itself in four movement, could involve up to nine to twelve musicians. Um, the, the second part and the third part then sort of introduces uh, two other instruments, the marimba and the glockenspiel. Um, and then the last part was where they all come together. And if you look at instead what Takada did in in crossing is that, and 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 also through the looking glass, she composed, played all the instruments herself and recorded and produced the album with the help of one sound engineer in two days in 1983. And so th there is a sort of virtuosity that one cannot deny from, from that, that fact. So, you know, it's, it's just, you know, because I want to make that difference because we see that maybe one could say that, oh, well, you know, Steve Wright did this in 1771 and Takara did this in 83. So, but, but where is the sort of that appraisal is still insufficiently, I think, adequate to, to look at the, the, the sort of labor that was entailed in, in making that sort of work. So she, she actually, there, there are some parts which we were trying to figure out ourselves, like, you know, did she play all of this simultaneously? <laughs> 
was there an overdub? Um, um, I mean, the, the, the kind of going into the more technical um, <laughs> questions, but, but yeah. Like if she was holding eight mallets, then how is, who's playing the cowbell? Yeah, you yes, know? yes, and that's right. Like, the cowbell was there all throughout the whole track. Yeah. Which and we didn't realize until we just, you know, listened for the cowbell yeah. consciously. Yeah. And then by the sixth minute of this track, actually, we didn't get to there. There's the introduction of the harmonium, which also requires some limbs to <laughs> execute. So, but I mean, there are elements of over, uh, overdub. So it's big. I think these questions come not from the fact of the technical curiosity, but how... Um, how little has been written about uh, this artist's practice. Whereas if you just go online, you could literally look for the score of uh, Reich drumming um, quite easily and you know, you could... This is the idea of that circulation of not just the work, but what is written about that work and, and their practice that perhaps I think we wanted to foreground today with this um, collective listening um, as well. So, yeah. Does anyone have reflections on what they heard? Um, do you want to share um, your analysis of the work, your readings? Please do. Uh, we could, I guess, yeah. So I, I guess that that's really like how we intended the, the exchange, sort of um, an opportunity but an exercise for us to also like um, dive in a, a lot deeper to to, to show like aspects of, of the artist's practice which we thought were um, quite interesting to, to look at. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're ready for questions. <laughs> Otherwise, we can continue listening. <laughs> I was thinking when you mentioned briefly about um, characteristics or aspects of femininity that um, Posnensky and Kim Lim hesitated to reflect in their works. And I was, I, I mean, I'm throwing a wrench into the three artists that you brought up, but what about an artist like Ng Tao, who deals with textiles? Um, was she then put in the show to also agitate the group that was thrown in? And also, like, just a comment on the music, it was wonderful. Uh, it made me think of Philip Glass and that, that same build-up. And also, there was that surreality going on. And, um, but unlike Philip Glass, I suppose Steve Reich and Takada had a kind of hollowness to their sound. Uh, and it's nice to make that association also to labor and production of that music because Steve Reich is performed even when he's not around, whereas Takada made, made it all herself. And it's quite nice to re suddenly realize and reflect on that difference. Sorry, what was your question about Ng Tao? The fact that Ng Tao used textiles, because you mentioned that um, what makes a work feminine was the use of fabric. I think you said that. I don't know. It's kind of like an unspoken condition to what makes a work more feminine or masculine or neutral. Mm. But what else? 
What else do you yeah. think like Ying Tao brings to the table? Yeah. With the uh, other women artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think the usage of like textile is the only determinant uh, for one to consider feminine, but I think we uh, we need to we ought also to look at um, how feminine the work is instrumentalized within art criticism um, in ways that are actually not very flattering um, at the start at least before it's reclaimed. So um, any that's hence any construction of difference one that can say this is not art that is typically made by white male folks um, is feminine or other or different. Um, and so I guess it, it's, this is one of uh, the, the typical attributes that are used to say that one's work is feminine. Um, and like I said, also like works that reflect domestic concerns or related to domestic spaces are often also used as, um, again, that, that construction of, oh, this is different. This is about like your life as a woman, as a mother, um, as a daughter, or it typically reduces the artistic sort of genius that we often very easily um, accord to, to male artists to uh, instead reduce women into very specific social, cultural spheres that they are often expected to occupy. Yeah, but I don't know if I can answer the... Is, is that the... Yeah, so I, 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 I'm not sure if that would mean that, you know, Eng Tao's work is feminine. But at the same time, we've also seen the evolution and how... Uh, there is a re reclaiming of certain materials, certain practices, um, and and just saying, yeah, some women artists do make works that are that. And and actually, one of the works we also were were thinking in our our research was Eva Hesse, um, and and her usage of the material is very much um, in that sense, like um, you know, like fabric, um, um, quite I suppose soft, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Mm. I think it's interesting the way Ying Tao uses textiles also because it's not just... Uh, she she does look at it as design but also as art. So there's this blurring between craft, yeah. Yeah, art yeah. and craft and that she is quite comfortable with. And I think also that comfortable cannot that comfort cannot be underestimated because I think also it's that overcoming of fear of being stereotyped as feminine. Mm. Um, mm. But she manages to try and move away from that stereotypical femininity yeah. in her works. Um, I don't think she ever when I, I I don't think she ever talks about them in terms of femininity, mm. uh, but yeah. always about form, color, rhythm, yeah. um, and three dimensionality when she she makes her work. Yeah. Is there a reason why the Posnanski work here is? Um, why the corrugated one was chosen over the aluminium ducts? Cost of transportation. <laughs> um, because, I mean, we, it's, I suppose there's a whole backdrop of the, the, the discussion with the estate as well. And, you know, um, so the, the series DW, how it, differs from D is that it's also lighter um, and because it's not steel they actually come flat pack 
Um, so th there is that. It, it's interesting. So like a lot of her consideration when she was making this work, you know, both her criticism and both her almost um, insight on reproducibility and 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 how they they move artwork move is still are still things that are of consideration today as we are in. Um, I suppose the exhibition making um, space, you know, thinking about transportation, insurance, value of these these things, they, they are invisible, but they are very much implicated in uh, the process of of, of making an, an exhibition. So, in many ways, perhaps she's very prescient in creating the series DW. <laughs> Apparently, we ran out of time, but I'll, I'll I'll highly encourage everyone to spend more time listening to the, the sound work. Um, maybe something that I left out saying at the start is also how beyond the global perspective and the kind of looking at this anomalous regist registers is also the fact that we, at this exhibition um, at the City Hall, we've also created a very rich um, program um, that looks at other disciplines that were very much uh, um, operating um, you know, alongside the, the development of the visual art uh, that you see in the Singtel Gallery. So performance and dance and how actually a lot of the early minimal artists were also creating um, sets for these dances. You've been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chiakasim, and Tamaris Goh. And the music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>